Welcome to the Off the X podcast, where we talk about overseas security operations and how the U.S. government protects their diplomats while serving overseas. Tonight, we had on Bill McCarthy. Bill is a 20-year diplomatic security special agent that did a ton of time in Africa. I call him an Africa hand, and I think that fits. Africa hand just means that the guy spent a lot of time in Africa and enjoyed going back. He was a glutton for punishment, but some of those posts actually sound really exciting, really good work, and like they were uh, a kind of jo- a good place to live. So uh, thanks to Bill for coming on and telling his story. This was a sprint. We had to we had to do all of this, a 20-year career within an hour, and we did the best we could. There's a ton of information here and some really good stories. So I'm thankful for Bill for coming on, and you all should Sit tight, listen to Bill, and enjoy the podcast. Thanks, y'all. See you on the backside. Out. Well, hey, I don't even know where to start with you. You have had uh, 20 years, and uh, we'll try to keep it to an hour. I know you uh, that's preferred, and I, uh, you know, we got things going on. So that worked for you? Yeah, you know, us retired guys, we like to be in bed by 9 o'clock out here on these. Hey, buddy. I can accommodate anything. I'm uh, thankful you're here. So uh, where do we start, man? So I looked at your posts, and uh, would you be considered one of those people we call an Africa hand, just because you've been you spent yeah. so much time there? That's that's kind of true. Um, yeah, I was one of those guys that you know a lot of guys back in the day. Um, nobody wanted to bid on Africa, um, and I remember just hearing some stories while I was you know in the field office. I was working. Actually, with a guy named Mike Mack, he probably he was actually in my retirement seminar. He was a shift leader in WTO. I don't know if you remember back in the day in Portland when he had those anarchists. You know, Portland was a problem back then. Back in was it ninety nine? Right. And he was a shift leader, and I remember him telling me stories when he was an RSO in Bujumbura. And believe it or not, my my earlier years, I was in the Merchant Marine for a while. I graduated from the Merchant Marine Academy, and I sailed to Africa. And what always pissed me off is when we get to these posts, I, would, I was in Mogadishu, I was all up, at, went through the canal, Suez Canal, and I always wanted to like, you know, hey, let's stay a couple of days. But of course, the ships aren't like that, man. You got to get in port and get out of port. So I never really had the time to really get in and meet with the people. So one of the things about the State Department that intrigued me, and it's a whole, I mean, we can, we can talk an hour just on this topic, how I got in the whole place. But uh, was, uh, you know, I, I, I always wanted to live in Africa. I was always intrigued with it. You know, I was always, uh, it was always something that really, I said, you mean you're going to pay me to run security and be a security guy in Africa? Oh, God, it was a life's dream, you know? So, yeah, I hear uh, when you do work at the embassies there, you get, well, one, it's affordable. Two, you get some pretty, pretty nice housing. And there's actually good work, whether it be criminal threat, terrorist threat, you name it. Uh, you know, it really, I got lucky. I'll be honest with you. I, I started my career. Let's, we should probably start back from then. When did I start? I started my career back with, in the Washington field office. And, uh, what it, what had happened was, is, um, how should I say this? Uh, again, I got lucky. I was, I only did a year there, about a, a little, a year and a couple of months. Um, Bruce Tully, he was the sack there. And, uh, we were, uh, we were doing a lot of, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of casework, and I'll never forget, I was one, I came, I was class 51, and there was a lot of pressure from people in my class. It was like me, Asya Ashraf Miller, Matt, uh, Matt Ranner. There was a lot of us in that field office were pressured to go from the field office to either the secretary's detail, the command center, and we were kind of pushed out. Uh, 
So I'll never forget. I remember, I remember getting a call from Pete Gibbons. He was a CDO at the time. And he said, Bill, you got two choices. You could either go to the secretary's detail or you can go to the command center. So I was really, I was really enjoying WIFO because I was loving the protection side of things. I was loving the crim side of stuff. So after some, 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 I, you know, of course you're a baby age. I'm a new agent. You really have no leverage. You know, you're going to go where they tell you, you know? So I ended up in the command center for a year. And uh, believe it or not, that was, you know, after, after serving in the field office, working in the command center, boy, that really opened up my eyes to the State Department. A lot of the newer agents, you know, they go into field office, they don't really interact with the Foreign Service. Uh, but I can tell you what, that was a, um, that was a real good uh, suggestion from Pete Gibbons at the time. He was a CDO. And I did a year there. And then, and then they said, look, you're going to get your onward, whatever you want, out of the command center. You're get you. So that was kind of like the, the pitch. So I kind of like, hmm, I, th- I thought about it. And I said, yeah, let me do it. So I did it. A great year. We could talk about two hours of all the, the things that you witness. When you're in the command center, it's kind of like the hub of like, you know, of everything that's going on in the world. You're patching calls. You know, you're, you're helping RSOs. You're dealing with, uh, you know, foreign diplomats who get caught drunk driving. You're dealing with all sorts of, you know, things that would, would involve Office of Foreign Missions. So did my year there, did real good, I guess. I, I got my armor. My armor was Cairo. That was really, wasn't really Africa. I would call that like the Middle East. Um, but uh, when I got into Cairo, uh, it was kind of like a field office. We had uh, John Freeze. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He was kind of a legendary RSO. And I had, um, uh, and, the, and the deputy at the time was Gentry Smith. You probably know who Gentry Smith was. No, Gentry, yeah. Okay, so Gentry was kind of like my like my initial real supervisor uh, when I was overseas. And I'll be honest with you, it was uh, the first day you walk in that place, you were busy. I mean, it was a seven, you were working seven days a week. But I was one of those guys that I was just, I was just loving the job. I mean, I could tell you so many stories. We could, one story I remember, um, I'll never forget. I'm, I think I'm at post for like a week, right? And I'll never forget this. It's, uh, you know, I'm a baby agent, you know, new ARSO. And of course, when you're the new ARSO at post, you get dumped all the, the crap work, you know? However, this one, it's like a Wednesday evening. I'm out to dinner with my wife and John Freeze, the boss, calls me in and he says, Bill, he goes, uh, oh, by the way, we didn't tell you, you're a duty officer. And I'm like, what? I didn't. Oh, okay. He goes, by the, he goes, the American Citizen Services, we've got a, uh, we've got this Arkansas businessman. He's, he's all the way down in this, he's about an hour and a half away in this, in this small little village or city uh, just outside of Cairo. And he says, he claims his business partner and him are being held hostage at a hotel. So here I, I mean, I'm a week into being an ARSO. So he goes, I want you to go resolve this problem. <laughs> and I look at him and I said, well, really? He goes, yeah, can you fix this? I said, well, I think so. You know, my Arabic, you know, we went to FSI. I had, my Arabic was, eh. you know, I think I had like a zero plus or something. But I'll never forget this because I had this FSNI with me. His name is Fahimi. And uh, he tells, hey, take Fahimi with you. Go down there and, uh, and, and just resolve the problem. And I'll never forget, I, I actually uh, grabbed Fahami and I said, Fahami, what are we going to do? He looked at me, he goes, well, you're the boss. And I'm like, I'm the boss? Oh, huh, yeah. All right, well, let's call the local police, let's call our local police contact down there and have them meet us. We're going to need at least five or six guys. You know, do you have a SWAT team? Do you have this or that? He goes, don't worry, we have what you, th- I think what you need. So... Sure enough, I go out there, right? And I, I go into the hotel lobby. I mean, don't get, I'm a week into the ARSO job. 
by myself. I'm, I, I mean, you know, really by myself. I get into the hotel lobby and the and, and, I, and I had the and I, I was obviously I was given the guy's number the self because he was able to communicate with the embassy so I had his mobile so I contact this guy and he goes yeah yeah he goes I'm down here in the lobby and he starts telling me the story where he was uh, he was basically selling these these uh, long distance cards back in those days we didn't have mobile phone you know we we had mobile phones but you really couldn't do international calling you needed these cards you know, to, with a code on them and you had to pay for them. Well, anyway, this guy had some type of network servers all over in different countries, all over Africa, all over the Mideast. That's why he was a multimillionaire. But he also, he, he had a kind of a small company, ran it himself. And he relied on these local business partners, these Egyptians, to help him do it. So he starts telling me, he goes, yeah, they have my, part, my partner, uh, uh, Ali, upstairs, and he's being held at gunpoint. I looked at him, well, I said, sir, as far as I'm concerned, uh, my problems. You're an American, right? He goes, yes. I said, you're safe. I says, you're good to go. I says, and he goes, no, no, you don't understand. All my things are up there. All my, you know, and plus there's this $20,000 that I can't get, to, you know, he had $20,000 in cash or something. So he's convincing me. So I look at Fahmy and I have these other, these cops arrive, you know, we have a team of, a uh, team of Egyptian cops. So I, I said to him, well, tell me what's going on. So he told me this guy was his business partner, and he had the, apparently, according to the local telecom community, they hadn't paid their bills. But, he, but according to this American, he says, well, I've been paying him. I've been giving him money. So after about you know, 10 minutes of listening to him, and this guy is probably about, you know, he's, like, he's pretty savvy, I would think. But you know, I'm from New York. I don't trust anybody. I look at him. I said, did you ever think that maybe your partner is playing you? And he looks at me, he goes, well, no, he says, I pay him. He's never stolen a dime. I said, well, right now there's $20,000 sitting up there in your knapsack in this hotel room. And so, uh, so I look at Fahmy and I said, Fahmy, let the hotel know. We'll just send the police up there. Let's just go up there. And I, I turned to this guy, I said, sir, and here it is. This is where I was so cocky. I said, look, sir, as far as I'm concerned, I think you're being played here. Let's let the Egyptian police handle the situation. Sure enough. You know, these guys go up there, guns drawn. Of course, I went, you know, I, 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 you always want to get in the action. So I'm kind of like hiding out there in the stairwell. This guy's downstairs. And uh, sure enough, it was exactly what it was. The guy was playing his partner. These guys were running this, this scam. They were trying to basically bribe him out of, out of uh, you know, 20, probably even probably go after him for more money. Because they were just hoping he was going to pay it. Yeah. But the guy just called the embassy. So these are the kind, and that was just a week into the job. So, I mean, I could just, there was so many stories like that, just, just in Cairo alone. I mean, uh, and, uh, you know, it was BJ Green. I don't know if you know, he was one of my buddies there. He was in a, another air or so. Uh, Bart Brown was there. Uh, eventually it was Colin Buckner. He, he came later. We had a real good team. We had a real good bunch of people, but every day was just filled with some type of story of, of just, can you, you know, you can't make this shit up. So believe it or not, that businessman eventually wrote a nice letter to the ambassador and he said, Mr. McCarthy, special agent McCarthy was able to resolve this, this issue, but it was just, it was just such easy. It was just such easy detective work or easy, whatever it was. Um, and boy, you start, when you start doing things like that and like when you got a fugitive too, but you get confidence. Yeah. You know, and There's so many random stories like that of, I mean, who would have thought something like this that you're handling, especially on your first week, you know, it's not just security at the embassy, managing programs, you, you know, you duty officer and you went out in the town to handle this. What, uh, Hey, where were you on 2000, uh, in, on September 11th, were you in Cairo or were you in I the was in Cairo. I was in yeah. Cairo with my boss. He looked 
we're watching the screens, right? Because the first attack came, right? The first plane hit. And I'll never forget, I'm in his office. You know, he had one of those big TVs in his office. And he turned around, he just looked at me, and he just said to me, that was no accident. You know, and of course, everything went to, you know, in Cairo, it was just because, you know, they were obviously a largely Muslim country. The Egyptians were just, um, I, re- I think they really felt pain for it. They, they really felt bad about the whole thing. Uh, and then about a month later, John Freeze decides, what did he send me first? I was in Afghanistan. I was one of the first guys uh, over there to open up that embassy. I was, I was with the, uh, the first team that, well, I, I think there was a couple before me. Um, but we went there. I, I, that was one of the TDY. I did a pretty long TDY there. And I also did a TDY in, in Gaza Strip. Uh, again, these are just like, here it is. You're, here I am in the field office. You're doing all this stuff. And next thing you know, you're getting tasked out to, to do all this basically high threat protection uh, before we even had high threat. How was that opening up the, the, the Kabul embassy? I mean, it's a, uh, it's a, um, well, how, when was it shut down? Like the seventies, late seventies? Um, it was actually shut down. When was it? I guess during Russia, you know, when the Russians were in there in 79, I believe. Yeah. Um, Hold on. Here it was the same location. Is that true? Oh uh, yeah, it's in the, it's in the same location. Now the only thing is, um, what what I th- what what where it was was basically it was in the heart of Kabul. It was right there in the middle. I can't remember the name of that street, but I think the same. I think we built the you know the embassy now is much bigger than it was then. It was just a small. It was, well, I just want to say small, but it was like a medium sized post. Uh, and I was there before they even started construction. We were there just basically, uh, you know, I was literally, my, my, uh, we weren't even in a hooch. It was basically trailers. There were trailers. They had some hooches, uh, but there were some trailers there. There was a little mini defect. And it was just incredible because, again, here it is. I go over there. Justine Sincavage, she was the RSO. And basically it was a guy named uh, Tony Diebler. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Tony Diebler was a legend in DS. He was crazy, but I, I shouldn't say crazy. He was very, very brave, and he was—he always was willing. He—he he would go outside the wire if he had to, and he would take you with him. You know what I'm saying? So he was—he was kind of like—he um, was pretty much a—he um, was pretty much the, the big tough guy in DS back then. So the only problem was with Justine and Tony, there were two entirely different personalities. So when I got sent over there, I was kind of like. I guess the more, I guess they thought I was a senior ARSO. I said, no, I'm really just an ARSO. I'm not senior. I only got what, maybe, you know, two years on the job, but they were sending a lot of newer agents out there to, to fill it in, but they, none of them had the overseas experience. The, yeah. The couple of weeks that I had or whatever it was in, in Cairo, I think I was in Cairo for at least six months. I think before, when they sent me over, there it was nine 11 when that hit, it took about six months before the state department, you know, before they all got their act together and, and sent us over there. What they have you doing as a, uh, if you go to open up an embassy like that, what were, what were you doing? Uh, that's a good question. Basically you were doing protection. I mean, I was going doing protection. Uh, I was doing setting up their BI program, doing a lot of the paperwork, the access control. And in those days, it was still cowboys and Indians out there. There were still mines in the road. There was, these guys were still surveilling the routes. Um, it was pretty, it was, let's put it this way. The day I arrived, right the day before I arrived, they killed, it was like 17 guys were just like right in front of the embassy were just, you know, they were, someone was brandishing a weapon and some of the Marines uh, took it as a threat, and uh, these individuals, most of them, were neutralized. It was quite a, it was quite an incident. 
So uh, we had rocket attacks, you know, just about every other day, you know. And of course, these things are just hail marys uh, coming off the mountain. Because if you know, if you've ever been there, it's kind of like in this valley. So these cats were up in the hills, and they were just shooting off these rockets, you know, just hoping uh, to hit. And you know, they'd miss, but not by much. You know, they take out these. It was just crazy. So we were doing uh, protection. Uh, I was flying, pretty much flying all over the country. Uh, and when I wasn't flying around, I was out in the office just uh, doing, trying to get the BI program set up, trying to uh, get the guards going. Oh, that was another nightmare. Uh, we had a little bit of a strike issue where some of the guards, they, they thought they weren't getting paid enough. One of them shows up with a hand grenade at the gate. Me and a bunch of other guys, we got to go out there and de-escalate that situation. Thankfully, nobody was really hurt. But that was, you know, it's just amazing. It was just, it was just one of those uh, places where uh, you had to have brains, you know, there was no policy. There was nobody, nobody talked about, well, you know, there's no, you know, you got to follow this step, this step, step. We weren't calling IP, you know, uh, the headquarters, you know, it was all Justine and Tony making decisions, you know, of course they're communicating with the front office, but you know, you, you to be as an ARSO over there, you gotta, you know, you gotta, you can't do anything. You gotta really be you're super smart, have a level head and um, yeah. So what else was we doing? Oh, so many things over there. That's history, man. You made history opening that open that <laughs> back up. That's pretty I don't cool. Know that. <laughs> you got um, you know, a statue in your name out there, Bill. I hey, uh, <clears throat> all right. So from uh you from Afghanistan you went back to Cairo, I imagine, for a while, and then what's next? Well, here's the thing. It's all DS is one of those things where I got very lucky. My career was like in in my opinion. I was doing really well. I was moving up to bigger and better things. Uh, it didn't come crashing till about maybe 12 years later. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But uh, I got really lucky because Justine Sincavage, who was the RSO in Kabul, and she remembered, you know, she knew me. You know, she, we had a good relationship. She liked me. And uh, she became the special assistant to Francis X. Taylor. You remember him? The assistant secretary was back in the day. And I'll never forget, while I was in Cairo, I got a phone call, and uh, they wanted to know when I was on. I think it was, it was someone from IP wanted to know when I was coming in on home leave because Francis X. Taylor wanted to meet with me. And I'm like, oh, my, was this for real? I said, oh, come on. And so apparently John Freeze was in the know, and so was uh, Gentry. And what had happened was is uh, he, was, he was going to ask me if I wanted to be an RSO. Now that was like back in the day, you know, being a first tour ARSO and going to being an RSO, that was, you know, it was kind of a big deal. Um, and so I got the hint that that's what they were, cause I was like really, they knew I was nervous. Take Gentry and John Freese, they knew, well, I you know, they, they probably want to offer you the, the, um, the, the uh, an RSO job somewhere or something. He just said it in passing. So sure enough, I went back to Washington. I was on home leave and I did. I, I, Justine Sikavich calls me. All right, show up at 10 o'clock. I go in there and believe it or not, it was really nice. The guy sat down with me and he was asking me about, you know, Hey, I understand you, uh, you, you worked with Justine and she has nothing but high, nice things to say about you. He goes, uh, you know, how would you like to be RSO Niamh each year? And I was like, wow, Niamh. And I don't, I didn't even know where it was. <laughs> I didn't even know where it was at the time. And, uh, how should I say? So I said, sure. I said, uh, you know, when do I, you know, of course I, when do I start, you know? And of course I had to go to French training, you know, the, I don't know if you're familiar with F. Have you been to FSI? Yeah. Have you ever done the tour at FSI? Well, I didn't have to do language training. I did the basic, uh, you know, the, training before Iraq. Uh, I did a couple extra courses to buy some time. And so I've been in and out of FSI, but no, not for language training. So, uh, 
you know, and I had taken some French in high school and I thought I was pretty good. I, I, I thought I was, you know, I didn't, I knew I wasn't fluent or anything, but it's a very humbling experience to get to FSI. Let's put it this way. It was so humbling. I had to do it twice. <laughs> <laughs> Once in uh, 2002, 2003, and again, back when I, before I went to Abidjan, they made me retest and I had to go through the whole program again. But, uh, yeah, I got some French language training and then, uh, I ended up in Niamey, Niger in, uh, what year was that? 2002, 2003. Tell our listeners where that is, sir. Oh, Niamey, Niger. It's in, it's right. Uh, it's in West Africa. It's inland. It's big right now because, you know, the whole top, this whole thing with the, um, uh, this ongoing conflict that's happening up in, in, in uh, you know, everywhere from up from Ouagadougou up to Niamey, up to Mali, the French, you know, have been battling these Salafists, these, 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 these um, you know, these basically these terrorists, they're, they, they're basically associated with Al Qaeda. Um, but now they're running their own little caliphate up there and, and the French are having a hard time kicking their ass. Um, but anyway, but, but when I was there, Niamey, um, they really, it was basically, you had Nigerians and then you had um, the Tuaregs. Now, the Tuaregs were more of Arab descent. They looked like Arabs, okay? The Tuaregs were up north, and the Nigerians were down south. The Nigerians were, were, they, were, they, were they basically resembled, you know, they were black. Uh, but there was definitely a dichotomy. There was definitely um, a split, and there had been some troubles and some wars. And so what they had done is the government had tried to accept some of the Tuaregs into the government. As a matter of fact, one of our contacts at the embassy was the Ministry of Travel, and he was a Tuareg. That's another story on him because his brother was basically one of the baddest mofos out there. But um, what had happened was is, um, is it was peaceful then. Well, I was there during a very peaceful time. The embassy was there. I got there. Really, I didn't really have many. We had, you know, we had some issues, but we didn't really have the issues that are going on there right now. But um, it's it's north of Benin, north of um, uh, north of you know Niamey's it's Niamey's the capital, so it's really way it's kind of it's it's far from the coast. It's like up when you start getting towards Algeria, uh, you got Mali, you got Niamey. I don't have the map in front of me, but it, it's kind of a lot of borders up there. What kind of threats do you face uh, in Niamey? In general, in general, crime was crime was critical. Why was crime critical? Because these same Tuaregs that were up there, uh, basically nomadic. You know, they, they you know th- this is the thing with terrorism. When I try to explain to like new ARSOs and stuff, these cats were you know during the week they were hijacking t- hi- Toyota Land Cruisers. That was big money. So these guys, if you're a missionary NGO, you're driving around uh, and you're driving in a new uh, Land Cruiser. Uh, and I actually had one missionary. He was actually, I had to go get him. I had to fetch him in the desert. He got shot. He was basically carjacked out in the middle over by Tillabury. Same place where the, uh, that, those army guys were killed. Same neighborhood. They were recently, I don't know if you've read about, remember that recent incident? Yeah, like two a year, year ago, ago, right? Or, yeah, or a year and a year and a half ago. Well, it's the same cats. It's the same guys. Um, so that threat was always there, but it was, it was never, it, it wasn't in your face like it is now. Now that place, the embassy now is, is totally locked. You know, you're, you're locked down there. What's the name uh, of that terror group, Bill? Oh God. Oh, uh, your head. Not off the, geez, it's been a while, but, um, not a big so deal. Preaching, uh, what is it? The, uh, El Maktar, El Maktar, uh, uh, you got me. Jesus Christ. Oh, I've only been uh, retired for 10 months and I'm already forgetting which terrorist group that was. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, 
But these same cats, they basically shot this missionary. I had to go out there and get him. Got shot with an AK right through the leg. Thank, and his kid made it. Thankfully, they didn't shoot his family. He had his family with him. Once they got him out of the car, they just stole the Land Cruiser. Uh, and, but the kid was able to make it to the road because they had no cell service. You know, they're right out there. It's just like desert. He had to get to the road to, to get some cell service. So we were out there. I'll never forget that story because me and the GSO were fighting over which vehicles to take. You know, RSO only had like, you know, two vehicles, but I needed some off-road vehicles. And it's just another funny story about how the RS, we it, normally every post there's good teams, but at that one particular post, me and this GSO, we had a little falling out over. He didn't want me taking GSO vehicles out into the, to the bush so to speak that's another story but um but yeah that's th- those that's that's definitely uh, one of the threats um it's, it's criminal but it has this 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 underlying there's some terrorism there uh, matter of fact is there was always kidnapping was an issue but back when i was there um it really didn't happen we did have one case though we had bill boltmeyer i don't know if you know this he was a dad he was an army dad the, uh, before me that's what a dad is Oh, a defense attaché. So basically, he was an army dad. And what had happened was he, uh, and nothing after 10 o'clock in West Africa, it goes, if you're out at, at 10 o'clock in a bar in West Africa, usually nothing good happens. Well, he had made the mistake, I think, with him and his buddy. They stayed a little too late in the bar. They all were, car, you know, carjacked because they were waiting for these guys to leave the bar. They wanted to steal this. It was the embassy's Land Cruiser. And uh, what had happened was, is as he got out to the car, um, he, he basically didn't hand the keys over fast enough. So he was shot and killed. So that was one of the cases that when I had gotten there from the previous RSO, that look, look, the FBI is going to be out here and they're going to be want, wanting to, uh, to, to, to search for this guy. I can't forget it. I forgot his name. But, uh, but we did. Brent Elrod was another RSO there from uh, another colleague of mine. He was the RSO there several years later. He actually, they actually got this guy. He's actually in 20. He's locked up now in a federal prison. But for the, for the two years I was there, uh, FBI would give me funding. And they would let me hire some guys, not mercenaries, but basically trackers to go out and try and track this guy. Because what they do is they would, he would be up, in the, up, up, up across the border into Libya. So, um, so that was, uh, that was some fun too. You know, the other thing about, this is the thing about DS and this is another, you know, I, I could tell you stories. I, I probably have 30 stories just with, uh, just on, on NMA alone. Then I got my next RSO job, which was in, uh, which was in Kinshasa. Yeah. Tell us where that is. Oh, I don't know. I think we only have this thing till an hour, but I got so many stories I could tell you about Kinshasa. One thing. Well, I want to hear a couple, two of your top, but Kinshasa is Democratic Republic of Congo. Where's that located, Bill? Uh, smack in the middle of Africa. Just pull out the continent, just stick your finger right there, smack it, and you're going to hit it. Um, it was, Kinshasa's the capital. Okay. So, uh, again, one of those naive things I, 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 you know, I was, who was it? Who was the, uh, IP desk officer at the time? Oh, uh, George Frederick. I remember him. He was the uh, senior desk officer at the time. I, I remember talking to him and, uh, he says, Bill, uh, you know, have you, what have you thought about your next assignment? I said, well, you know, I says, George, I, I see that Kinshasa's up on the list. I figured, Hey, you know, I got a little bit of French. I could speak French, you know, why don't you send me a uh, one, one Go to send the Kinshasa. It was a stretch job because uh, I was in the, I was not a two yet. I was a three still. Uh, I was a three in in, uh, in Niamey. I got promoted while I was there. Uh, 
So I said, all right, well, let, let's uh, put your bid in and, and uh, let me let me talk to some to, to the to the to the, the higher ups and let's see what, let's see what happens. Sure enough, like a day or two later, I get a call. It says, yep, you've been paneled. <laughs> I oh, I've, I've been paneled. I said, oh, that's 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 great. And uh, Kinshasa was probably the most professionally sharpening. Uh, I can't say the, the things that I got involved with there were just were just incredible. They were the place was in a state of transition. Uh, Joseph Kabila was the acting president. I don't know if you know the whole story about the Congo, but his dad was once a president. Once a president there, um, and there had been a couple of coup attempts and all sorts of violence, and the place was just a perpetual state of unrest and, and political violence. Uh, the UN was there; they had what over a hundred something thousand peacekeepers. Um, we, I had a really good relationship with the UN there. Um, I started; I thought I, it was kind of like a, 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 an interesting relationship with the UN because I thought they were there to protect the embassy as well, but they really weren't. Um, but, um, I, I was there for about a, the, the fight, the fighting started about a year into my, into my assignment there. There were four vice presidents basically on the Sun Accords in South Africa. They, they allowed four vice presidents and Joseph Pila to, to run for the, the next, the next term for the next election. The problem was each one of these vice presidents had their own bodyguards, but they really weren't bodyguards. They had about 300, 400 armed dudes each. So if you can remember the old days in the Chicago gangster wars, these guys were always constantly at each other's throats. It was, it was always something uh, going nuts there. And uh, we actually had about maybe a couple of days of where it was really, really bad. And, you know, I made some mistakes. I mean, well, I, I did a lot. No one died. The one thing I always say to myself, hey, I kept everyone safe. I had a really good team. Uh, I had uh, ARSOs. I had Mark Tran, Chris Bakken. They were my, the ARSOs, um, and uh, and I'll tell you truthfully, we went through some things that you know you had to be brave because they were shooting at you. You had to. Be, there were times I'm driving around in my armored vehicle, going out, getting people, uh, and you know the, the shots are ringing out. We were, we were being targeted. Uh, they actually tried the, the JAO building uh, when the rebels were on the run. We had government forces coming after these guys. They were trying. They, were, they actually shot up our CACs, trying to get into our facility because they were trying to seek refuge. They weren't trying to kill anybody. Hmm. So as you can imagine, being the RSO, and, and, and here it is, me and, um, uh, we had, uh, me and Mark Tran, we're right there, right in the middle of this. Uh, we're ready to go out there and, and do our best uh, to try and, uh, how should I say it, de-escalate. Uh, but if we're going to go out there and de-escalate, someone's getting neutralized. Uh, calling the UN, trying to get the UN to help us, but they had their own problems. They have their own facilities. They have their own people to protect. So uh, the, the reality is, is um, I, think, I don't think Washington or D.C. was, was – it kind of – it was a slow burn when we got to that. You know what I'm saying? It was a lot of telltale signs. That the, and this was going to happen. The ambassador knew it was going to happen. The DCM knew it was going to happen. And they said, Bill, we really need you. Because what was happening, and this is the, one of the things I learned, is it's not like these days, oh, you know, people just, you know, everybody just get up and evacuate. The problem, and the ambassador was Roger Meese. He said it was like a chin-up contest. We had the Belgians, the Brits, the French. Everybody was, was, in, was, was trying to get to elections because they, really, they wanted to really do the right thing and get the right person uh, in the office and hope for some type of peaceful future for the Congolese people. 
So sure enough, I'm not, not, I kind of bought into that. I said, well, yeah, okay. I mean, I would communicate with DS. I was, I was always giving them little spot reports, telling them what's going on. Uh, but I, I don't think I ever really downplayed it. I don't think I, 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 I never said the sky is falling. I was never the gloom and doomer. I was kind of like, hmm, let's see if we can get through this kind of thing. And, he, and, he, and when I say chin-up contest, they, they were right. Because if we would have pulled out, if the Americans would have evacuated, um, the Brits would have went, the French, every, all the other diplomats would have went, and the place would have probably went into a, a pit of chaos. And uh, Roger Meese, who I give a lot of credit, I learned a lot from him. He, he's retired now. And we stay in touch sometimes in, in email. But really super smart guy. And, and like, but he also, he didn't have a disdain. He just, he was a, an African hand. He was the real African hand. Him and this guy, Bill Swing. I don't know if you ever heard of this guy, but he was also, he's legendary, a legendary diplomat. He ran the U, he was the head of the SRSG for the UN. And uh, <clears throat> these two guys were, you know, they were buds. They were professional colleagues, but they were also known in the department as like the most professional diplomats. So, um, to, you know, so to what happened was, yeah, we had a lot of violence. There was one day we actually, there was probably almost, I, I don't want to give a number, but hundreds of people dead in the streets. Thank God there was no CNN stringer or any journalist there because I call it the war that never happened. You know, it was just another day in Africa where, uh, you know, the politics just, just, it just turned really, really ugly. And, Where'd uh, you guys live? Were you living on the compound? Or? Now, that's the thing. I was fortunate. Me and the Marines, the Marines had their house. I had the Marine house, and then there was the RSO house. The on RSO the had a house right next to the Marine house. Okay. So uh, I was very fortunate. That's why I really felt like I had to get out. You know, all my other colleagues in the farm, they were all spread out. But there's a, it's, go, it's called Gombe. It's this residential area in Kinshasa. And, uh, and they, were, phew, they were kind of like right in the middle of everything. So, um, you know, in hindsight, when I think about these things, you know, that was what, 15 years ago, probably more than that, you know, I probably could have done more to convince the ambassador because this is what I have a problem with. I had a problem with kids and families. We're going to do a post like that. It, it probably should be unaccompanied. But this was when, don't forget now, we had Iraq going on, uh, Afghanistan. We had all these, uh, these other posts that were coming up where these kind of, we couldn't have, we couldn't afford to have unaccompanied posts because nobody would bid on them. So that was another dilemma that the, uh, the ambassador had, uh, you know, had kind of shared with me, but I think I really did pay the ultimate price because, you know, ultimately, um, you know, I did get, when I got called back, you know, on a home leave, I had a meeting with, um, Charlene Lamb, uh, you know, it was kind of like, it was kind of like a, a scolding session, but, but more like, you know, they probably wanted to see, well, who is this guy? Why was, what was he, what was he thinking out there? Why were there, why was he not a strong enough RSO to convince his ambassador uh, to evacuate those folks out of there? And I sometimes, you know, me and my wife, we talk about this kind of stuff all the time because I, we, we had the ambassador in my house. He was li literally staying with me for like three days during the violence. And I said, you know what? We did. There were some trip wires that were definitely crossed. But um, the bottom line was we didn't really we didn't lose it. We was risky, but we didn't lose we didn't lose one particular person, no one uh, well, any any diplomats. Did the posts yeah. end up being evacuated later? Um, actually, to be honest, yes. What had happened was after violence, uh, 
the ambassador received a call from another, I guess, a senior person in the State Department, and they were, they went to uh, an authorized or uh, an authorized departure. You know, it goes in scales. There's, there's ordered, and then there's authorized, meaning that they'll allow it. So we did go eventually after that to authorized departure. Uh, and some folks, but what this is the thing in Kinshasa when it's a you know if it's if there's no shooting, no violence, it's a great place. You can play golf, you can play tennis. Um, it was an interesting place. It was just such a um, cyclical. How should I say it? Um, you know, it was, it was so cyclical. One day it would be horrible. The next day it would be like you're 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 in, you're in jungle paradise. You know, um, it was kind of it was weird. It was weird. Wow. Yeah. All right. So from there, uh, trying to keep us on schedule here, you went to be the branch chief at Domestic Training Branch. Any stories from there, man? You know, I think that was when you. I think you were one of the new guys. What, what I year? was one of them. That's the first time I I, I re- remember seeing your face because when I saw you in Baghdad, I remember coming uh, across you at the training center because I came in in two thousand eight. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I really. I was. <laughs> Uh, Doug Allison was, he was actually, I think he was T or he was the head of, he wasn't T, he was head of the training. And, uh, I remember he was, he was like the big boss and I remember, you know, Hey, bid on this job. I went out there and uh, it was a great job. You know, we had, uh, I had a great team, um, you know, running the BSAC program, um, and, and the training program, you know, you probably remember the PRS training. It was really good. I was more of a, I was really the branch chief, but I kind of like to get my, I don't know if you remember, I was kind of, sometimes I was an instructor. Sometimes I was out, you know, out at BSR, uh, you know, helping out with the driving training or, you know, the firearms. Um, I like to be in the field. Uh, I think you, uh, you, uh, for our class, you gave us a, a couple PRS classes or, uh, and you might've come out to, 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 uh, BSR. Um, yeah, I think my employees they like they exploited that. They knew Bill, Billy, they knew I liked to get up on the podium and talk. We're trainers, okay? Yes, you know, make them do a hundred push-ups, make them do whatever. But you're there, you know. We're not going to fire anybody, okay? Or you know, we're not going to create um, this 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 a committee to to you know to scare the crap out of them. The point is, you got to motivate, set the example, and you know, get out there and and train them. We had a lot of folks, you know, you know, PT. Hey, let's get out there. Hey, the guy, he didn't make his mile and a half run. Well, are you running with him? Let's get out there. I mean, that's, I mean, I, you know, I, I came from the day and when I went to Merchant Marine Academy, I was trained by a bunch of Marines. You know, you're damn right. Every single one of them was, was, was geared up and running with you. And if you weren't, you were trailing, they were kicking you in the ass. Um, and, uh, because let's face it, DS and HR, they spend a lot of money recruiting and getting you in there. Uh, so it's, and every single, every single one of those BSAC students has has got, had something to get in there. And honestly, one thing that I was always impressed with is I don't know how the Bexing did it, but they had a, they did a real good job because I was never, you know, yeah, we had some, but on the most part, the majority of DS agents were professional, uh, really, really good people. I always tell people I've served with way more good people than bad people in DS, a, a ton more. Um, and yeah, and I do think they do a good job and I think they're getting better as I was getting out. They started kind of revamping how they do the Becks and the interviews. And, uh, I talked to a lot of these guys and girls. Now I do some YouTube videos, you know, my, my book came out and, and, uh, so I kind of mentored them here and there. And it sounds like a, a ton has changed. And there's some of them that have made it successfully, successfully into BSAC and beyond BSAC. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's great that they just continue to get better. So that's good. 
the hiring process, it sounds like. is uh, Yeah, it's just that you, I think the key thing that we all need to, especially me, when I, I learned later on, um, as you move up in an organization, see, for me, I love the job. I love going out and making arrests. I love doing protection. I love being out in the field doing, you know, taking an ambassador to a refugee camp over the border in Iran with, you know, dealing with and negotiating with the Northern, Northern Alliance and working with the Army Delta. It was just fun. I had, I, I can't, you know, the more I tell people, it's, it's like hard to believe. I had to, I had the job of a lifetime as a kid. You can't imagine a better job. And I think what happens is there's a lot of folks in DS that came on for those kind of reasons, but then there's a lot of other ones that didn't, you know, that, you know, some of them, you know, they aspire to be DCM. So they aspire to be ambassadors or they aspire to be whatever the, the department wants them to be. I was one of these guys, look, I always wanted to be a security guy. I always wanted to be a security officer. So I think what happened with me is not only within, in, in, you know, and it was all good. I mean, I retired, I got my pension. I'm, I'm all good. But you've got to be careful about being too ambitious. And you got to sometimes be careful. You got to know how not to take yourself too seriously. And I think I only learned that on later in my career when I started to realize, you know what, you got to take care of your people first. You know, you shouldn't always be, you know, if you're always looking to your next assignment or looking for you to get promoted, you're not really in the moment now. You're not doing your job. And I think that's some of the things that I always try to talk to the ARSOs about. It's just, you know, is keeping it real. I think that's good advice. We have a, uh, you're going to bring me to 3,000 downloads, and several of them are special agents or DS agents uh, and aspiring people who are just interested in the story. So good advice. You went to Baghdad next. That's when we shared a beer or 12. Were, we, were you a roommate of mine for like two days or something? Yeah, like I think that? we were. You know what? Now that you're... <laughs> That's how I remember you, Cody, because you were like the nicest, you were the cleanest roommate I ever had. And my wife is going to say that she's going to let me, she's going to hear this. She goes, you're not a clean, but you know, you were, uh, you, yeah, I remember, I remember it was you and uh, it was, who else was there? Was it Joey Kramer was there as well? Who else was there? Joe was in Baghdad. Uh, Wisenhut came to Baghdad. Um, I forget who you were, you were ops coordinator. Explain a little bit what that is and then I could maybe think on exactly who else was there with us oh it's i was basically the deputy to the regional operations and this is another thing about uh baghdad how many there was like what 80 90 agents there massive yeah Yeah, i was like a two i was like a senior agent you know not senior enough to be a deputy or the rso i think scott boltrix was the rso and he had like four deputies uh, my immediate boss was kind of Mike Wilkins. Good guy. He, he really, uh, he covered me. He covered my ass a lot because, you know, uh, but regional ops, we were responsible for all the regional, you know, whether it was Basra, uh, Talil, Kirkuk, uh, up in Erbil. So I was constantly on the helos doing trips. I think I wrote like 20 EERs that season, uh, for all, some of the aerosols I never even met. Uh, but I had some, uh, I had a, I had a pretty much a, a large crew, but, um, it was, you know, as anything in DS, when you have something that large, you're going to step on each other's toes. You know, it was a lot of senior guys, you know, um, uh, you know, I think who else was out there? We had, uh, was it Sabrina was out there. We had, uh, Cronin, uh, you know, who else was some of the guys that were like, kind of like my peers, but these, these guys all went up to do, you know, Bruno, I think, I think he's been, I think he's MC now, but he was a great guy. Cronin was a great guy. They, I worked with him. You know, we had a real good, good team there. 
Um, we but had you Malloy. know, were you, were you, were you, let me see what years you were there. Was it 11 or 12? 2011. Okay. And when did you leave in 2011? I'd say, I would say, I think I left around September ish. I don't, I got there, I got there summer. So I, I, think I was, I was in and out of the summer. Okay. So yeah, so we crossed in 2011. Kevin Beloy was, was there when I was there. He was protective ops. Paul Husser came to, yeah, now that they came, they, I think Malloy took Sabruno's gig. So actually that sounds right. Yeah. 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 And then, uh, Kevin Malloy, by the way, Kevin Malloy, you know, my, I was an Abishan. He came, he, I think he retired too. Yeah, he did. He retired, but he was head of deputy of OSAC and he came out to Abishan like a year ago. He went out to dinner. He's a good guy. Yeah. I'm about to get in touch with him. Get yeah, him he was good. He'd be a good one to interview. Yeah. yeah he, he was good to us. Yeah. He's got a lot of, a uh, lot of good stories too. Yeah. But, the, but ba- Baghdad was one of those places though. Uh, you know, you kind of hibernate a little bit. Nobody knows who you are. Uh, I got a lot of stories I could tell, but none of them really overly interesting. Most of them are probably over on the sensitive side of things anyway. So, but I did get my assignment out of that. Now you want to hear, we got a funny, this is a funny DS story, how I got my next assignment. All right. You know how you get to Baghdad, right? And, you know, you're there for a month. You got a bid on your next job, right? Because it's a year out, right? So I'll never forget. This is a funny one. So uh, I get a call from the CDO. And I says, Bill, you got to put your bids in. And put, put, you're in Baghdad, so you're going to get one of your, you know, you're going to get one of your top choices. So make it good. So I think I put one was Croatia. Two was RSO. I don't know. Uh, some beautiful. I think Vienna. And then three was Botswana. So, so sure enough, uh, I mean, I put some others down, but you know, some dream ones, sure enough, three days go by CDA calls me up. He says, Bill, you're in luck. He goes, he goes, you're going to Botswana. I said, well, I said, well, and what has, what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to reach out to post and tell them you're a prospective bidder. Right. And I had done that, but I had no response from post. I said, well, hold off. I said, I already put, I sent the email out. I have not heard from post. He goes, oh, it's not up to them. I said, well, wait a minute. No, you you don't get it. I said, let's, can we just wait a week? Let me, let me call the RSO out there. Let me me find out, uh, you know, let me find out uh, if it's going to be okay. Sure enough, you know, two days I call on the guy, no, the RSO at the time, this guy cry check. I call him. And he basically gives me this message. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know, but I don't think you're the, I don't think you're the preferred candidate. I said, well, John, I said, well, can you at least have the DCM send me an email back or something? You know, just sure. Nothing. I get nothing. CDO calls me a couple days later. And I think he said, oh yeah, no, he said Culver. And you know, he was at the meeting and yeah, you're going to be the RSO Botswana. I said, wait a minute. Are you sure? Because apparently, oh, and I, Krychek did it tell me that the ambassador was currently in Washington lobbying for this other individual to get the RSO job. No communication. I am that I am going out as the RSO in Botswana, much to the chagrin or much to the, so I tried to get out of it. I said, I, I told the CDO, I said, look, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm not. Well, I mean, I was trying to go somewhere else. Sure enough, for months, the post never even reached out to me. You know, the CDO had told me, Bill, you just let Washington take care of this. You just go, you just do what you're told. Sure enough, I get out the post. Oh, my. And the shit show begins. DCM sits me down. Aeroso is going to be relieved. And who was current there was going to be relieved in two days. I'm not the guy he wanted. Oh, my God. You want to talk about starting off on an unprofessional? It was horrible. And that's when uh, 
Yeah. When did I do after Bots One? Oh, that's when I went back to. Then I went to back to DC for countermeasures. But that was a great tour, though. Three years of safaris and and uh, not much security related stuff. It was just a great post to be at if you wanted to uh, get out in the bush and check out animals and gators and crocs. I should say not gators, crocs. Uh, it was a great, it was a great posting, but professionally it was, um, it was challenging. Yeah. Was that DCM there the whole time you were pretty much? Yeah. Oh, that's tough. Hey, you, you died. You know, I could have, I, I believe me. I, t- I, even, I even saw Culver. I saw him. He was the director at the time. He came out to Baghdad. Do you remember when he visited? Yeah. He actually, uh, we, that's when we, we, got, got, we got rocketed. Well, he probably doesn't even remember this conversation because he probably had serious other things on his mind, but uh, I'll never forget that. Um, but Hey, I survived it, man. I retired. What? Uh, four years later. Yeah. And I went to, my, my last tour, my last overseas tour was Abidjan, which was very similar to Kinshasa, but nowhere near as violent. Also in Africa. Where in Africa? West coast, West, West Africa. West Africa. Okay. What, uh, Anything there you want to tell us? Well, you know, we had a couple uh, scary situations. Nothing like what happened in Kinshasa. But uh, again, uh, this time I was a lot smarter because I had, you know, being in Kinshasa, I knew exactly what tripwires to be on the lookout for. And uh, the problem we had there is, again, we had families. Uh, again, we had an election that still hasn't happened. They postponed it for a year uh, due to the COVID thing, I guess. Uh, it's still there. Uh, but what it, what was happening was, is they had some, um, you know, some boogeymen, some politics were being played and, uh, we had a couple days with Villemore. Do you know what that means? It's a dead city. It means that, uh, you can't get, you can't leave your house. You're stuck in the embassy. Scary. But for me, it was like, mm, I don't see bodies in the street. Really? It was a couple, but not, I don't see like real craziness. Like I saw in Kinshasa. So myself and the uh, DCM, we were, you know, constantly having EACs, constantly communicating with DC. Tell us what an EAC is. Oh, Emergency Action Committee. Basically, it's where the senior folks at the embassy, we sit down and we discuss, we pull out the uh, the SEPA, the emergency action plans, and we basically assess the situation. And then uh, uh, and what had happened, you know, me and the DCM and, and several others, political officers, certain other agencies, they all chime in. And uh, we never, it never got to the point where it pulled the plug. However, well, there was a uh, Exxon was there. I'll never forget the security guy there, and he was freaking out. He was, uh, he was a, uh, a security guy for Exxon, former religionaire guy. And he's like, Bill, how come you guys aren't going home? How you know? Don't you see what's happening? I said, Oh, we're just kind of like turtle up for a little. We're gonna kind of wait and see and see what's going on. So sure enough, Exxon pulls. So Exxon pulls out, you know, and then what do you think? OSAC calls, everyone else starts calling. And, uh, well, but luckily it was a little slippery, but, uh, we got through it. Uh, although in the next year or so, we're still going to, I think Abidjan's still going to be a little dicey. So it's got to, um, it's going to have to be, uh, I'm sure they got a good team out. When I left it, the, we had, we had a, all our plans were in place. The Marines are trained. Everyone's good to go, but it's just another one of those African posts where on any given day, you know, he just, uh, he'd go crazy. Yeah. You did a full three years there. It looks like I did. I, did. I retired out of there. Okay. Oh yeah. 2019. Well, good shit, man. We're pushing an hour. You, you made that work in that did time I? frame. You did. 
All right. Uh, we, we skipped a couple uh, spots that either research and development, but I mean, we want action here on the off the X podcast bill and you gave it to us, sir. Did I? I <laughs> no, it was good. I, I mean, I think just hearing about these different countries and how people in the country, the, the civilians in the country operate. And, I mean, you mentioned two places. One turned into sounds like a civil war. Another one is having election issues. Uh, you know, people getting kidnapped. There's, you have a ton of information you put out in an hour, and I'm, I'm sure people will be appreciative you know, of it. One of the things that I think that, that the, 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 you know, the, the thing about the State Department and with DS, we're kind of one of those organizations, like, it's kind of trying to put a square peg in a round hole. DS sometimes, what I find really interesting is that, you know, we're supposed to be these risk managers, right? And sometimes, man, we put ourselves in some really hairy situations, and the funny thing is with DS um, and w- with our training and what we, w- you know, what we've, we've gone through, it, it gives us a certain amount of confidence and, and competence to really uh, guide the, the, the front office, basically DCMs and ambassadors. And that's really our job because they're the ones really, you know, they say we're on the hook too, but really it's always going to be the ambassadors and the DCMs who are kind of on the hook because we are responsible, you know, they're responsible for the safety uh, of, you know, like the host country is as well. That's another thing. You know, the host country and them are responsible for making sure our diplomats are safe. And believe it or not, uh, there's certain posts uh, that are um, that are more uh, that are a lot more risky than others. When I was in Baghdad, people said, "Oh my God, we're in the shit." You know, there's rockets. I said, "Man, I got to tell you about that one tr- car stop. I got stopped by a bunch of." Congolese armed guys and we, you know, AKs pointed at our heads and, you know, and then I start telling them these stories. Africa is just, it's spooky. And you have to have a good level, little head on your shoulders because if you make one wrong move, you know, it's, um, it could be, uh, it could be crazy. But uh, I have to say, though, you know, as we end this thing, one of the things I I have to say, you know, I, I got out of, I did my 20 years plus, retired at 53. I have to say, do I miss it? It's not necessarily do I miss the job. I really have such great memories that I, I, when I think about it and I, I tell my buddies here, the guys I play tennis with or all my other friends, they're just amazed. And I just, I just really feel honored to have been, to been, you know, and to have been a part of the DS organization. Yeah, there's some things that, uh, you know, as when you look at the organization, it's not perfect. But, uh, you know, my bosses, I had some of the great, you know, Doug Allison was a great boss. Gentry Smith was a great boss. Um, you know, um, some of these ambassadors like Roger Meese, uh, some other ones, they were all just, just really great people. So I had the privilege of working with such nice, really good, smart, I was just saying smart people. There's an old saying, you know, they, say, they say steel sharpens steel, but man sharpens man. You know, you probably had that a similar thing in the Marines or something. That was the one thing about these 20, these 20 plus years in the State Department. I really think it really taught me how to uh, be a little bit more professional and how to really pragmatically look at risk. Look at it. When, it, when are we really in trouble? Because if, if you don't know what it's like to really be in the shit, you know, you can't, we can't, you can't, we, we, we don't have time for nervous Nellies in this business. Yeah. You know, and, but, you know, and there's a lot of times I go back to Washington, I'd speak, and, uh, and a lot of yeah, times, a couple of meetings I get kicked out of, a couple of meetings they thought I was a little bit too much, maybe too much of a cowboy or a little, I don't want to say cocky. Sometimes I, I say overconfident, but uh, you've got to be careful because you don't, you don't want to ever be like that either because you know, it'll come back to bite you in the ass. 
Yeah. Well, I spent about half the time that you did in DS, and I would say uh, same thing. I mean, you kind of get thrown in it very early. You get thrown to the shit, you get a lot of responsibility, and uh, that seems to be a common theme with all the guests that come into DS, and they tell you to you know, give you a gun and a badge and kind of make some decisions, start leading people pretty quickly in these overseas yeah. posts. Well, yeah. Well, shit, man. Thanks for coming Thank on. Cody, man, anytime, brother. Feel free to edit that. I hope I didn't go uh, adding virgin to any territories or, or uh, anything too sensitive there. You didn't but, do uh, any of that. You did great, man. And, uh, you know, if you ever want to come back on, you are invited to tell uh, more stories. But, uh, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop recording here, but sit tight. Don't hang up yet. Okay, good to go. Thanks. Thank you. All right, all right. Bill McCarthy, everyone. Thank you, Bill, for coming on. Thank you all for listening. A couple items to touch on if you're interested in learning more about diplomatic security special agents and like to read. I happen to have written a book. It's called Agents Unknown, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. Doing well on Amazon. Go over to our 100, 104 reviews and uh, five-star reviews, 90% five-star reviews, and the rest are four-star reviews. So really uh, thankful for the support. Check it out. It's on Amazon. It is in paperback, it's in Kindle, it's in Audible. It's on Audible in audio format, of course, and uh, you can check it out there. Um, I have a website, CodyParon.com, where you can find all of my social media. You can find some YouTube videos that I, I – generally, those are directed to diplomatic security or aspiring diplomatic security special agents where I, uh, well, try to give some information on how life is. And they ask – people ask questions, and I respond to those questions. So – Check it out. Just type in Cody Perron on YouTube, and uh, you should be good to go and find it. I have a Facebook group called Becoming a DSS Agent. I say I, I just because I started it, but we have several active DS agents from brand new agents in BSAC, or brand, excuse me, people, folks in BSAC, DS agents um, that just graduated from BSAC, some with five years, some with 10 years, some with 20 years experience, some that just retired and some that retired a long time ago. So if you're interested in learning more, you can come to that group, fill out the questions. I need to know your interest and I don't want just somebody coming in just to kind of listen in, uh, but fill out the information, becoming a DSS agent on Facebook. So thank you to everyone for the continued support and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Let us know how we can improve. Hit us up. Oh, a couple more things. Next couple podcasts are going to be security contractors, guys I worked with. One's a medic, uh, and one is a uh, just regular shooter, former Force Recon guy that was on the team. He's actually in the book, Matt Rawls, um, a.k.a. Sleepy. He's going to be on the next podcast. So if you're an aspiring DS agent, I know you like listening to DS agent episodes, but these guys support us. These guys are part of the mission, and we don't get it done without them. So go out and check this next episode uh, once it comes out. So thanks, y'all. Send me questions if you got them. Info at CodyParon.com. And for now, I'll sign off. Thanks, y'all. Out.